Well, good morning, Harvest. It's great to see you this Sunday morning. Well, I, I can't see you, but you can see me. And uh, thanks, Jordan, for uh, hosting the lobby again this morning. Great job there. And uh, so great to see so many people here from different places. I mean, I people here from Newmarket and Belleville and, and uh, Alberta, Quebec, British Columbia, and Scotland. And so uh, glad to have you with us uh, this morning in this way and to be gathered uh, like this uh, to hear God's word and worship him uh, together. Um, just before we get into God's word, though, you know, I mean, obviously, it's just been a, a tough series of weeks, um, really uh, eight weeks now that we've been doing uh, this. And, and as a really as a world, as a as a as a global community experiencing all the uh, effects of COVID-19 and uh, that has made a life really difficult. And I know many of you have loved ones in long term care facilities or who are frontline medical or first responders and just really a tough situation for many, many people, for sure. And then, of course, we had a couple of weeks ago the mass shooting in Nova Scotia, which, which was just devastating to all of us as Canadians and particularly those who live on the East Coast. And then just this past week, just the tragic news of um, the helicopter crash off the HMCS Fredericton uh, off the coast of Greece, participating in NATO exercises. And um, then we're just going to show you a slide right now of the six uh, victims of that crash. And um, just devastating to see them. And I do want to um, say each of their names right now is a tribute to them, understanding that we are a military community uh, with uh, Canadian Forces Base Borden just down the road, that we have members of the Canadian military who are members of our Harvest family. And so uh, tragically, we mourn uh, the loss. We mourn with those who mourn Sub-Lieutenant Abigail Cabral, Captain Brendan Ian McDonald, Captain Kevin Hagen, Sub-Lieutenant Matthew Pike, Master Corporal Matthew Cousins, and Captain Maxime Miron-Morin. Just so tragic. Um, All of these um, pressures, all of these different tragedies that are afflicting us these days. And so it is appropriate that we uh, pause right now for prayer before we get into God's word. And uh, we uh, seek him uh, for comfort in these times. Father, Father, hear our prayer. We know that you're working in this world um, in ways that we cannot see, that we certainly do not understand, but we trust your plan. Father, we submit to your ways, though we don't always get it. But Father, we understand that you have the words of life. You alone offer hope beyond this broken world. And God, we are hanging on to that. Father, bless all of those who are affected by this pandemic. Bless those grieving the loss of life in Nova Scotia. Father, bless the RCMP and other policing services with the loss of their fellow officer. Father, bless members of our Canadian Armed Forces as they grieve the loss of these six courageous young men and women. So tragic. Father, thank you for what they do for us, what our Armed Forces does to protect our freedoms, to protect this country to promote freedom around the world. Father, thank you for their sacrifice. Father, comfort their families. And God, in the uh, midst of this heartache now, we turn to your word. Once again, we're, we're desperate for you to speak to us. We need to hear from you. For you alone, Father, have the words of life. To whom else would we turn? So we pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. 
All right, let's um, take our Bibles and uh, let's get ready to look into John's Gospel, chapter 4. Um, and I, I want to get right into this with you. And I, I want to have us admit that anytime we would enter into a conversation about morality, that's our topic today, a conversation about morality. Anytime we would enter into conversations like that, it is a potential powder keg. I, I think about some of the topics. I wrote a few down here. Just think about this. Mor- moral issues now. Abortion, matters around marriage, sexuality, assisted death, the use of cannabis, the use of alcohol, the environment, the treatment, ethical treatment of animals. All of these are moral questions today. And if you get a bunch of people in a room and you start talking about any of these issues, the potential is for it to, to end up in a place of offense and even anger. And as Christians, when we think about entering into such conversations, we need to carefully think about how we approach it, because it is not within our right as Christians to approach it with our, listen, opinions. But only the Word of God. We believe the Bible. We believe what this book says about every one of these moral issues. And, and that, by the way, once we say we're rooted in the, in the word of God and we're going to follow what the Bible says about that, that then puts us in the micro minority in the culture today, holding positions that the world around us has long since abandoned. And so then what Christians, what some Christians do, not everyone, what some Christians do is they then dig in and become so determined to engage in what are called the culture wars seeking to convince and and even convert the culture around us back to a Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, Kevin DeYoung commented on this, and he said, the world, I think we have the quote there for you, the world needs to see Christians burning, not with self-righteous fury at the sliding morals in our country, but with passion for God. That makes it a lot more personal. And so as that all relates to this series that we're in, Conversations with Jesus, the question is, how should we approach conversations about moral issues? That takes us to John chapter 4. Jesus initiates this conversation with a woman who had a past who hadn't always made the best moral choices. And in this conversation, he models for us a pattern to follow. He lays out priorities on how we might address the moral issues of our day. And then secondly, kind of focuses us back on the simplicity of the life-altering gospel message of Jesus Christ. And the bottom line here, and this is in your notes, here's what we're going after. The bottom line is, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with this. We need to see morality the way Jesus sees morality. Amen? We need to see morality the way Jesus sees morality. And so we're going to approach this message a little differently than, than we normally would. I'm going to read and comment on uh, pretty much uh, the first 40 verses of, of this um, passage going to read and comment it on as we uh, go through it. And uh, then after we've kind of done that, we're going to lay out these seven principles. All right, we're going to see 
morality the way Jesus sees morality. Okay, so John 4, uh, verse 3, uh, Jesus left Judea. He departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through. Notice he had to pass through Samaria. We'll come back to why that's important. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph uh, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it's, it's noon, sixth hour, it's noon. Jesus is needing a drink of water, just made a long trip. He's tired, he's thirsty. He's in Samaria. Okay, that's noted because it was not a place the Jews normally went. There was a lot of history between the Jews and the Samaritans. Went back hundreds of years, a lot of animosity that existed between these two people groups. And we will come back to that. So verse 7, there came, he's sitting by the well now. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now, this is highly unusual. No one actually went to the wells at noon, at midday. By, by the middle of the day, they were kind of already into their day. So the women would go very early in the morning to get the water that they needed for the entire day. And in fact, they would go in order also to socialize when they went there, to spend some time together as women. But this woman, she's not going early in the morning. She's going midday. She's trying to avoid the crowd of other women who would go to the well early on, and she's avoiding them for a very specific reason. And again, we'll come back to that. Jesus said to her, verse 7, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to, to buy some food. Verse 9, she points out what's obvious to them, maybe not so obvious to us. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, A, a woman, and B, a Samaritan woman. And it, it goes on to say here, we just have a little comment, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is a highly unusual situation from the gender perspective, man to woman, and from the ethnic perspective of Jew to Samaritan. Now, verse 10, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God... It's an unusual way to answer this question, to answer this, this comment that she's made. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not just a Jewish man. Okay, I'm a pretty particular kind of Jewish man. I'm not just any Jewish man. And then he presents to her, what is easy for us to understand, but not so easy for her to understand, he starts talking to her about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in terms of it being, metaphorically, of it, of it being living water. We're going to find out a lot more about that. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She has no idea what he has meant because she thinks he's talking about liquid water from the well. He has no way to draw water out. So she's still not quite getting it. That's not unusual. But Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's going to try and answer her question. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
And so Jesus responds with this beautiful explanation, again, that's super easy for us to understand if we're already saved. You know, if you already know the Lord, you, you know what he's talking about. But verse 15, very similar to Nicodemus, who we looked at um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the rich young man who we looked at last week, very similar now. The Samaritan woman doesn't quite get it. She says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. The woman, she's, she thinks that she's going to get some kind of, you know, indoor plumbing system, water on demand that's going to arrive at her home, that she's going to get a visit from the eternal water company that's going to come in and put in the infrastructure so she doesn't have to go to the well anymore. But that's not quite it, is it? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband. She has this notion. She's taking a first step. She wants to understand more. But before Jesus goes any further, he knows he has to deal with something. He has to show her what her need really is, and it isn't for water, but it's much deeper. And that what he's talking about can satisfy that much deeper need in her life. So he tells her, Go call your husband. Have him come here. We'll talk together about this whole thing. And then, you know, verse 17, the woman answered and said, and I can just imagine in this moment that there's a bit of an awkward moment. She says, um, you know, I, I don't have a husband. She lies a little bit. I don't have one. And verse 17, Jesus responds to that and says, um, you're right in saying, correct, you don't have a husband. Um, you've actually had five husbands, divorced from all of them. The one you now have is not your husband. You're cohabitating in another situation. Marriage was such a train wreck for you that uh, this time you didn't even bother. So that part, at least, Jesus says, end of verse 18, what what you've said there, at least that part is, is true. Now, this is where there's a real awkward silence just before because Jesus has just revealed this massive need that she has. And then in a let's not go there moment, verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, I, you just told me all this stuff about myself. You must be a prophet. You must know things only because God told you those things. And she switches the subject. She asks a question or at least makes a statement. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, Jewish people say, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. There's a question there, even though it's just stated in the form of a, of a statement. She abruptly changes the subject to that of proper worship. This was a matter of great controversy, the primary controversy between Jews and Samaritans. How many times when you're trying to share the gospel with someone, do they want to change the subject from them and their need of Jesus Christ to some controversial subject between you and them? She's deflecting here. She doesn't want to talk about her deep hurts. Now, verse 21 <clears throat> Very kindly, Jesus doesn't call her out for that. But from verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
And he goes on to talk about a little bit more, concluding with this in verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, it's not about a location. It's about the spirit of God being in a person. And then, surprisingly, verse 25, she delivers the answer. She's starting to fill in some of the pieces around what the gospel's really all about. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah's coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And then Jesus delivers the punchline. This is the climactic moment in the conversation when he says, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the one you're waiting for. Now, at that very moment, after he delivers that, according to the text here, this is when the disciples come back. They're marveling. They're surprised that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? No one dared do that. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. No longer is the most pressing need that she would gather some water for the day. And she went away into the town and said to the people, starts telling them, about what's just happened to her. She says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Come see a man who revealed my life to me. Can this be the Christ? See the Savior, the, the Messiah? And the people went out of the town, verse 30, and they, they came to him. Many people were told, verse 29, 39 now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. The Samaritans came to him. They asked him to stay. He stayed a couple of days. Many more people believed because of his word. Then they came and said to the woman, verse 42, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. They came to faith in Christ because they heard Christ speak to them. Now, all of that, that's the entire story. Run through it very quickly now. You got a good handle on the text, I hope. Now, seven principles to help us see morality the way Jesus sees morality. Let's look at this first one. Meet people where they are. Meet people where they are, no matter their moral choices. This woman had made some devastating moral choices in her life. And yet Jesus met her right where she was. And Jesus had no trouble, even as a Jewish man, meeting and talking with this Samaritan woman, despite the fact that his fellow Jews wouldn't understand why he would be talking to a woman, why he would be talking to a Samaritan, why he would be talking to a Samaritan woman. But Jesus always went to the places where people who were broken were found. In fact, he had very little time for people who thought they were good with God. He intentionally went to the outcast, the vulnerable, the despised. And the reality is, if we're going to have meaningful conversations with people about Jesus Christ, people who don't yet know him, that's only going to happen if we go to them, if we're okay hanging out with them, if we go without condemnation and judgment. If we go to where they are. I mean, that's what this Samaritan woman would have expected. First of all, she would have expected that he wouldn't even talk to her because of who she was. And yet not only did he talk to her. He had a very respectful conversation with her. 
You know, one piece that I read recently about the, the pandemic and the changes that are going to come in the church that, that, are, that are going to be a result of all of this. What's the post-pandemic church going to look like? One of the things I read just in the past couple of weeks is that rather than expecting the community to come to us, which has been largely the nature of our ministry, come to our services, come to our uh, special event, come to our, 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 uh, our high five camp, come, 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 come to us. But rather than expecting the community to come to us, we will now go to the community. It's not that it's going to be entirely that. It's, it's still going to be some come and see an invitation and, and, and visit our church and come to a worship service. But it's also going to be far more of the go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. Meet people where they are. And part of that is going to be this live stream continuing on afterwards, but also our engagement in communities around the city and around this county and of all the relationships that you and I already have engaging in those. We have to meet people where they are, no matter their moral choices. Here's a second. We have to believe that no one is beyond the reach of God. No one has sunk so far down into immorality that they cannot be saved. I mean, this woman's life was a disaster. And and I read this and I'm not trying to be disrespectful of her at all. And she's going to be in heaven and I'm going to be able to hang out with her and find out more about her story. But if she's gone through that many husbands, here's what I'm thinking. I'm trying to be respectful. But if she's gone through that many husbands, I'm thinking that maybe she might be part of the problem. You know? I hope that's a fair assessment. But no matter the details, she was a broken woman. Drawing her water at noon so she could avoid the wagging tongues of all the women who would go earlier in the day. She didn't fit with them. Her her shame was overwhelming to her. And this is, I mean, this is the thing. There are so many people today who think they don't fit here. And even though their life is shattered, it's broken. They're filled with shame. We know that we have the words of life for them. Yet they would never consider coming here. Many avoid the doors of the church because they think they have to hit some kind of moral standard before they can even come through the door. How tragic is it that anyone would ever think that? And God help us if we've ever given that impression. That's not the gospel. The reality is, and that's a word for us as Christians who are part of the church, but for those who are watching who don't normally come to a place of worship, and maybe that's the reason why you think you need to reform before you get here. Maybe you identify a little bit more closely with this woman. I would just say to you, come with your shattered lives. Come with your broken marriage. Come with your crippling addiction. Come with your crushing fear and anxiety. Come with your criminal record and your lying tongue. Come with your promiscuity and your temper. Come with your faithfulness, faithlessness. Because there is grace enough For everyone, no matter the depths of despair or the severity of brokenness in your life, 
But Jesus offers living water. He offered it to the woman. He's offering it to you. Come, drink deeply at the well of the gospel. And have your thirst quenched. Have your brokenness healed. Have your despair turned to hope. No one, no one is beyond the reach of God. And further, here's a third principle. Present the gospel. Christian, present the gospel. Not moral reformation as their hope. What's what's really interesting here is Jesus might have been tempted to give her tips on marriage. Here's what you need to do to make this current relationship. Maybe you should marry the guy and, you know, here's five things to do. Here's five love languages. Here's the his needs, her needs. Here's all that you need to make your marriage work. He didn't offer to counsel her on relationships. He didn't tell her, in fact, that she had to get out of her cohabitating relationship with number six. He talked to her about living water. He he didn't want to address the external issues, the the living with the man, the broken marriages, all of that is external issues. He didn't want to address those issues before the internal, internal issue was resolved. And so he talked to her about living water. He presented the solution right up front. Even before the details of her tragic life were made known, he addressed the issue of living water. We need to think carefully about what our mission is. As stated by Jesus and given to us as his his, uh, sons and daughters, uh, those who are on mission for him, the church of Jesus Christ, go and make disciples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. In in Acts 1, 8, he said, be witnesses. To the ends of the earth, witness to the fact of the resurrection. And to carry that on without respect to who we're preaching to. Like this crowd deserves to hear the gospel, but this one not so much. This crowd has hope, this one not so much. We're not to preach that way. We're not to be selective, but we're to go to the end of the earth to preach to everyone the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tell everyone about this hope. And not, by the way, to carry out some kind of moral crusade in the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we preach. We have no other message. We fail. We fail if all that people know of us as the church is that that's a bunch of people who make good moral choices. In fact... Being a a moral people, as we're seeing, is one of the things that keeps people from coming. Frightens them off. I mean, I don't want to be known as a person who makes good moral choices. I think I've made a bunch of good moral choices in my life. I don't want to be known for that. I want to be known. I want my testimony to be, I am a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what I am. Not moral. Any righteousness I have is the righteousness of Christ in my life. There's a huge difference there. And if you need a refresher on the gospel, if you need to hear it clearly, 
maybe you're a Christian, you need to a refresher on what this actually is, what this message is that we preach. Or if you're not yet a believer and you need to know with clarity what exactly is this gospel message, then I would commend to you again the five gospel words, hbc.info, and scroll to next steps, and then right down to the bottom, you'll see five gospel words. It starts with an understanding that there is a God, but sin has separated us from him. Jesus Christ came as the substitute for us, dying in our place. And if we believe, we will have life, abundant life here, eternal life forever. God, sin, substitution, believe, and life. And we'll get a great understanding of how this works with Jesus Christ. So come admitting that you're a sinner and seek forgiveness, not with human effort, not trying to appease God, not trying to be good, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, believing in that alone as your hope. That's what it means to drink living water. All right. That's the first three. We're trying to see morality the way Jesus sees morality. Number four, navigate each person's journey with grace and patience. Jesus doesn't shut her down or shame her further when she changes the subject from her messy life, okay, which he's just revealed, to that of the proper way to worship. And everyone sees that for what it is. She's deflecting, but Jesus patiently answers her question. He shows her grace in the way he respects her. This is her journey, and Jesus is planning on walking it with her if she'll allow him. And it's been so encouraging to hear that there are some who are joining these live streams who haven't even been to our church before and are checking this out and listening to these messages. And we're praying that God is working in each person's life. You don't know Jesus yet, but you're taking this all in. You're taking steps along in the journey. And we need you to know that it's God who's the one who saves, not us. All of this is in his hands. And our uh, task is really just to present the message as clearly as possible, to pray, to answer questions, to tell our own story about how we came to faith in Christ. And certainly isn't to rush anyone along. These things are in the hands of the Lord. And if you're one of the ones who's seeking and searching after God, just keep at it. We're praying for you and cheering you on. And whatever your path to salvation is, we're going to be patient and gracious and help you as we're able. But the decision is yours to make so come with every question that you have and ask them and we'll seek to help help you along then here's number five watch as guilt fear and shame melt away at conversion once the person comes to faith in christ you're going to see this triad of evil the thing that actually the things that actually enslave us they now are shattered The woman we saw, she left abruptly as soon as the disciples arrived. But then she returned with a bunch of people from the village, people she didn't want to interact with before. Many of them come because she had told them about Jesus. Not only was she converted, she lost all shame. She engaged with her fellow villagers, the very ones she was avoiding. Jesus took her guilt. Jesus took her fear. Jesus took her shame away. Because Jesus would take all of those things on himself on the cross, not just for her, but also for you and me. He crucified this triad of death and despair at the cross. 
And listen, to come back to this point again, the moral reformation of individuals doesn't address this. It doesn't really deal with the guilt, fear, and shame that people have as a result of their poor moral choices. I mean, to alter habits, to do what what psychologists call behavior modification, that addresses a person's morality without dealing with the heart issue. It's going to leave residual pain because it, it doesn't solve the core issue that every human being has, that of this severed relationship with God. We can't solve the severed relationship with God through modifying our behavior. If you want to be free of the guilt over past decisions, if you want to be free of the fear of being found out, if you want to be free of the shame of of things that you decided to do that weren't great and have left scar tissue or of things that happened to you by others, If you want to be done with all of that, surrender your life to Jesus Christ as the Samaritan woman did. And then just as was true with that Samaritan woman, she then took that shame which Jesus had crucified and she went back into that village no longer bearing it. And she turned that into a trophy of grace. Her shame then became her story. As she celebrated what Christ had done for her in taking that upon himself. Her shame, the bad moral choices, merely became the means by which God drew her to himself. Drink deeply from the well of living water and you'll never thirst again in your spirit and in your soul because all of the obstacles to that happening, the guilt, the fear, and the shame will be gone. All right, a couple more here. Hang in with me. And having said all of that, you must also recognize that there is a God-established standard of morality. We're not setting that aside. We're not minimizing the morality of God at all. Everything we've looked at so far does not mean that we ignore the moral question. Jesus didn't ignore the moral question that was before this woman. He did indeed address the brokenness of her life. He brought up the fact, Jesus brought up the fact that she'd been married five times and was currently cohabitating. Jesus didn't ignore any of it. Now, the challenge here that we have is that we live in a culture that doesn't want to acknowledge that there is a moral, an objective moral standard. We could blame whoever we want. Great forces have been at work over the last several hundred years to bring us to this place. The Enlightenment, which established uh, reason as the highest value. Rationalism, which put human being at uh, human reason at the center. Postmodernism's more contemporary look now at philosophy. Postmodernism's deconstructing of everything that we've ever known. So that now what we have is this mishmash of various views of truth. From truth would flow an objective morality. We have these kinds of phrases. All truth is relative. Your truth is not necessarily my truth. Truth, if it exists, cannot be known. That's a good postmodern mantra. One um, Christian counselor said this, uh, Brad 
Hambrick is his name. It has become more important to be true to yourself. I'm sure you've heard that before. It has become more important to be true to yourself than it is to do the right thing. And largely that's because the right thing is a moving target in our culture today. So we live in this anything goes world and that affects how we see all of these big controversial issues like sexuality and gender and marriage and child rearing and everything really. But there is a moral foundation. I mean, if we want the living water that Jesus Christ is offering to us, we have to admit that the standard is not self. The woman's issue was that she was so turned inwardly, she was so about herself that she could no longer see anything else. The standard is not self, but God. There is a moral foundation and objective truth that originates in the Creator, as we've said. And in her excellent book, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, the book is called Confronting Christianity. She makes the point that she addresses atheists and naturalists who would push these philosophies of reason and no objective moral standard. Atheists and naturalists actually have no foundation to have any kind of moral code of their own. And the honest naturalists and the honest atheists would admit as much. We have no grounds to have a moral foundation of any kind, a moral code. And she writes, Christianity, in contrast, claims that the God who created the stars and galaxies also created us for special relationship with him and calls us to the kind of radical, self-giving love that overflows from his own heart. That's the standard. The law of love. It's the heart of God. And it's a heart of holiness. And again, if all of that is true, then our seventh principle makes sense that we ought to pursue and encourage the holiness of God as believers. We don't have much in the text about the change that happens in the woman's life except that she had lost her shame and she came back and witnessed to what Jesus had done in her life. Based on this start, though, I'd I'd say that she began her pursuit of holiness on that day. It's a dangerous thing and even disqualifying to say that you're a believer and yet not to see ongoing change a regular pursuit of the holiness of God, of becoming like Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Peter laid it out in very direct terms as he was wont to do. This is 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. As he who called you is holy. Jesus is the one who called us. And as he is holy, Peter says, you also be holy in all your conduct, in every way, in the decisions you make about your relationships, in how you live your life and what you give yourself to. Be holy in all your conduct since it is written, and this is from Isaiah 40, you shall be holy. For I am holy, says the Lord. See, in gaining our salvation, we freely admit our need. We admit that we're Sinners, that the residue of sin must be eliminated from our lives day by day and sin by sin. So that we reflect more and more the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
every moment of every day drinking deeply of the living water that Jesus offers us and never thirsting again for any other way but Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so kind to us in in giving us these words of life, in offering to us living water. Father, we desperately need that. The world around us has no answers. Its philosophy at best is confusing and conflicting. So, Father, we need you. I I pray for those who are watching right now, who are listening to my voice, who don't yet know Jesus Christ. God, that this would be their moment. That before we even sing the next song, they would be, as the woman was, a great stirring in her heart concerning Jesus and a readiness to go and tell whoever would listen. I've given my life to him. I'm going to follow Christ from now on. I'm drinking of the living water. And God, for us as as Christians, God, help us to remember that any righteousness we have is not from ourselves, but from you. To not be condemning to not fight the wrong battle, to be about the business of making disciples alone and glorifying you by doing it. So God, thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.